she's usually the one to make sure everything's in place and everything looks as good as it can look. So if you see something off on me, that's why. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. And we're entering into a, a season in our nation and really in the world when, and I'm, this is no surprise to you, when everyone's starting to look at the incarnation, they're starting to look at the birth of Jesus, the, the amazing mystery of God becoming flesh. But I want to turn our attention to something that could only happen with God becoming flesh. In other words, instead of focusing on his birth, I want to focus on an aspect of Jesus' life that I think it always astounds me, um, and I think it should astound others a whole lot more than it does if we would really sit down and think about that. And that is the fact that not only did Jesus Christ become flesh, not only did God choose to dwell among us and make his dwelling among us, but as he was dwelling among us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, prayed to his Father. Many, many times in the Gospels you hear that Jesus would separate himself from his disciples and he would go off to pray. and He'd separate himself from the crowd and, and usually, typically it says he, he went off into a mountain and prayed. And those many, many times it says that, usually that's all you get is that Jesus was off praying. It doesn't, doesn't tell you why he was praying. It doesn't tell you specifically what he said or what was burdening his heart. But here in John chapter 17, we have something Amazing. Here in John chapter 17, we as the people of God get to eavesdrop on a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. We get to hear our Savior while He was here on earth go to His Father in prayer. And we're, going, we're, going to, we're not going to hit every point in John 17. It's going to be more of a, uh, an overview. But I want to start off by reading the first five verses, so if you would please stand if you're able. We'll read John chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had, that I had with you before the wor world existed. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to this chapter, one of my favorite sections in Scripture, I know that we are on sacred ground. I know that we are, we are approaching something so holy and so mysterious. Yet in your wisdom and in your mercy and your grace, you have recorded it down through the centuries so that even now we may look back and we can hear our Savior pray for himself, Pray for his disciples and, and pray for us. So I pray this morning that as I attempt to expound upon this, that you would, uh, you would be with my words, that your spirit would go out with power and would feed your people 
with your word and that your son would be glorified in it. It's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So as I said this morning, we're going to take a peek into the prayer life of Jesus himself. And I was thinking, if, and I was even thinking this as we were going through the, the prayer request, if you want to know where someone's heart is, if you want to know what they truly care about, listen to their prayers. And you can get that somewhat publicly, but even I, I think about myself when I pray publicly, I'm, I'm more aware of the fact that people are listening, and maybe not as honest in my public prayers. But then I've, I've started this, this habit that I do, and I don't do, it very, uh, I don't do it as often as I would like, but when I, when I have enough time or when there's something especially, uh, especially burdening me, then I have a journal that I'll get out, and I'll actually write out prayers to God. And that's just because I'm, I'm more of a writer than I am anything else, and I, that's how I get my thoughts organized, and, and I, I understand myself better when I write it out. But if you were to want to know in, in my life right now specifically what is, what is weighing on my heart, what is my biggest, most, most urgent concerns, then you just have to open that notebook and see this is what he prayed about. And essentially, that's what we're doing here in John chapter 17. We're hearing what is on the heart of our Savior. And ultimately, ultimately it comes down to two things. He has two burning desires on his heart that he would be glorified, the glory of himself and the good of his people. So I'm realizing I opened up to the wrong section of notes here. Give me just a second. This is why I should bring my wife. about that the two desires of his heart is for his own glory and for the good of his people we're going to see this broken down into two sections or or into three sections into three requests that he makes you see the first one in the first five five verses that he read but we see that christ prays that he himself would be glorified and we should praise god that christ's number one concern is for his own glory. Because if Christ is not glorified, and we're going to get into that in just a minute, but if Christ is not glorified, there is no good for us. There can be no good for us. So really, and I struggled when making this outline, I struggled with, should I put that under praying for himself, or is he truly still, even while praying for him to be glorified, he's still secondarily still praying for his people. But he says in verse, uh, says in verse one, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, when just as a as a note, when you're reading through the Gospel of John, he uses that phrase, "the hour has come," quite a bit. In fact, if if you wanted to go back later and look in in John chapter two, in that scene where Jesus is at the wedding and and Mary comes and says. We've, we've ran out, out of wine. Jesus basically says, woman, what's that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then in, in John chapter 12, just a few chapters before this, when, when 
the Greeks and the Gentiles are, are coming to Philip and they're saying, we want to see Jesus. Jesus, seeing these, these representatives of the world coming to him, says, now the hour has come. And then here, Jesus says to his father, the hour has come. What is Jesus talking about when he says the hour? What is he referring to? Well, what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about that one appointed time of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He's, to, to be glorified means to be, to be lifted up. And John does this play on words where, where he's glorified in the sense of he's, he's lifted up in honor. He's, he's lifted up in praise. But before he gets to that, He's lifted up in shame. He's lifted up in the humiliation of the cross for all the world to see the love of the Father for His people. So Jesus here is looking forward, and this is coming towards the end of His, towards the end of his earthly life. He's looking forward to that time will he be, where He will be lifted up on the cross for the sake of His people, and then even on to that, where he would be lifted up by the Father. And he says, glorify me that I may glorify you. And here we have the purpose of him being glorified. He's saying, he's saying, Father, the reason I want you to glorify me is because in glorifying me, I will then turn around and I will glorify you. And he gives this analogy. He says, he says in verse 2, since you have given him authority, talking about the Son, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternity, eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says, Jesus says, in the same way that you've given the Son authority to give life, so that he may turn around and give that life to any who you have given him, in that very same way, give me glory that I may then turn around and glorify your name for all to hear, for all to know who you are. And then he says in verse 3, or I'm sorry, in verse 4, he gives the basis of, of why his father should glorify him. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In other words, Father, I'm, I'm doing what you have called me to do. I'm doing what you've set forth to do as verse 5 and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed now for this verse to make sense you have to know John 1 1 you have to know in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is looking back to that perfect unity he had with the Father. That time when it was him and the Father and the Spirit and they were one. And Jesus is saying, Father, I long for that again. Glorify me. I've done what you've sent me to do. Glorify me with the presence, with, with your presence before, as I had before the world existed. So he's He's looking back to the glory that he had, and then he's looking forward 
to the humiliation of the cross, to hanging in shame, to having nails driven through his hands and thorns driven on his hands, to having his his disciples, the ones whom he he loved, turn away from him, and, and if that wasn't enough, to having the wrath of a holy God for all the sins of the world poured upon himself. And through that pain, through that humiliation, through that judgment that he is willingly taking upon himself, he sees that he will once again be glorified. His Father will once again glorify him with the glory that he had before the world was created. But it only comes through the shame of the cross. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Keep your place here. Philippians chapter 2 and it's a well known passage but I think it's well known for a reason look down to verse 5 of Philippians 2 Paul tells the church of Philippi this have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Even death on the cross. There's there's the pain, the humiliation. There's the author of life going through death. And then verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Another passage you could look at, we won't turn there, but in Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, looking at what he's accomplished, looking at the perfect will of his Father, looking with the cross right in front of him, he both looks back and says, I want that glory again. And he looks forward and says, it's only coming through the cross. Jesus Christ prayed for his own glory, and you should praise God that he did, because without his glory, there is no salvation. There is no redemption. Without Christ being glorified, you are eternally damned. But praise God that Christ prayed that he would be glorified. And then Christ prays, not only for himself, but he turns to his disciples. You see this beginning in verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. 
and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now, I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am, just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I consecrate or sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So here, Jesus prays for his disciples. And in 6 through 10, you see a description of his disciples. You see, first of all, that these disciples were a gift to Jesus from the Father. Jesus says, I pray not for the world. I pray for those ones that you have given me out of the world. And as a gift to the Son, they have received, they have believed, and they have kept the word from the Father. They have heard the words of life spoken from Jesus. And as Peter says to Jesus early on in the Gospel of John, he says, when, Jesus, when, when everyone else is leaving Jesus and Jesus sees the disciples, he says, will you not too go away? And Peter says, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of life. So they were a gift from the Father. They received, believed, and kept the world, the word of the Father, and they are distinct from the world. Jesus specifically says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for mine who are in the world, those who you have given me out of the world. And this, has to, this, this leads in then to his concern for these disciples. You see in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. So he's concerned about them because he is now getting ready to leave them. As I said, he knows the cross is coming. He knows his ascension is coming. And then even more so down in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as, as I am not of the world. So Jesus is saying to his Father, You've given me these men. They have believed on me. They have received the word that you've given me. And now, I'm leaving them in this world that hates them precisely because of that word. Jesus knows the persecution that's going to come after he leaves them. He knows his disciples are going to be murdered, are going to be tortured, are going to be, uh, are going to be sent to islands uh, in, in exile. He knows every single thing that's going to happen to them. And you would think, if, if this was us, you would think, okay, so the concern is they're in a world that hates them. The prayer should be, Father, get them out of this world. But the very next verse, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So 
many times. Listening to, and I, I can't remember specifics, but listening to the prayer requests and, and the pain and the heartache, and so many times we think, if God would just remove this from us, if God would just remove us from this situation, just take us out of it, take us out of this world that hates us, then we wouldn't have to fear. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I don't want you to be taken out of the world. I want you to remain in the world as a witness to the love of the Father. Jesus instead prays that they would have joy. Look back to verse 4. Do I want to go back to verse... No, not verse 4. I apologize. Um, Did I write that down? All right, somebody help me out here. Find where it says that your joy would be fulfilled in them. Audience participation. 13? Yes. I should... Thank you. He doesn't pray that they'd be taken out, but that they would have his joy. But now I'm coming to you in these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And so thinking about this, and we've already looked at the fact that they're in a world that hates them, but now we have to ask, how in the world could you speak of joy at a time like this? You're about to face the cross. You're about to be murdered because of your claims to be the Son of God. Because you are the Son of God. Your disciples are about to be torn by lions. They're about to be beheaded. They're about to watch friends and families forsake them, and the ones that stay with them are going to be persecuted just like they are. And you talk to them about joy? Well, go back to chapter 15. And this is where I got the verse 4. Beginning with verse 4, of chapter 15, I think this sheds light on what Jesus is saying when he prays that their joy will be fulfilled. Beginning in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. By the way, just as a side note, I felt like everyone should have that underlined, circled, and highlighted. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, if my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in me. If you, keep my, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. You want to know how you face persecution and still have the joy of Christ in you? You're still have the joy of Christ fulfilled within you, you do it by abiding in the Savior. You do it by abiding in His Word. You do it by staying true to His commandments. You want to face persecution and have joy. And you can think of the 
I'm sure you've heard the many stories of the martyrs singing hymns as they're burned at the stake or praying for the persecutors while they're waiting for the lions to come tear them to pieces. That joy can only come from abiding in the Savior, from abiding in His Word, and from, tr- for, from trusting in what He says. But not only back in John chapter 17 does He pray that their joy would be full, their joy would be fulfilled in Him. But He also prays, and we've already read this, but he also prays in, prays in verse 15 that they would be kept from the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, this is another quandary that I had to think about because Jesus is about, again, he's about to die on the cross. He's about to crush the head of the serpent through his death and resurrection. But even though Satan will be defeated, Satan will not disappear. One commentator, the way he put it, he says this, The death and the exaltation of the Master, meaning Jesus, spells the defeat of the ruler of this world, meaning Satan. But that does not rob him of power to inflict terrible damage on the Lord's followers. The Christian's task then is not to be withdrawn from the world, nor to be confused with the world, but to be remain, uh, but to be remain in the world, maintaining witness to the truth, protected by the Father in response to the prayer of Jesus. I had a professor in college. The way he'd explain it: Yes, Jesus crushed the head of that serpent through his death and resurrection. But if you've had ever had any experience with snakes, you crush the head, and the tail keeps thrashing. The snake, for all intents and purposes, the snake is dead and will not last another few minutes. But the tail, it keeps wagging. The professor said, what we're dealing with now, the pain, the sorrow, the tragedy, the sin, the wickedness, that's the thrashing of the serpent's tail. He's defeated. His days are numbered, and he will be destroyed. But until then, Jesus prays, Father, keep them from the evil. Keep them from the thrashing tail. So he asks that their joy would be that his joy would be fulfilled in them. He asks that they would be kept from the evil one. But then he also asks that they would be sanctified or that they would be set apart. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world and for their sake I consecrate, or it's actually the same word, it could be translated, sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. He prays that his disciples would be sanctified through the truth, so that even though they must remain in the world, they would be set apart from the world. That's what the word sanctified means, that they would be set apart, They they would be different from the world they would be set apart for a purpose within the world. And then Jesus says, as I said, when he says in my, I don't know what it says in your translation, I think in the KJV it actually says sanctify again. In the ESV it says consecrate in verse 19. But it's the same word. And what Jesus is saying is just as I have been set apart to fulfill your perfect will, in the same way I pray that they would be set apart to fulfill the perfect will 
through the preaching of the cross. Just as I have been set apart to fulfill your will through the suffering of the cross and the resurrection after the cross, I pray that your people, these disciples, these men that you've given me, will be set apart for the, for the fulfillment of your will through the preaching of the cross. And don't miss that the way they are sanctified, again, the same way that they can face joy only by abiding in His Word and abiding in Christ, they can only be set apart, they can only be sanctified by the Word. It says in verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. So in leaving His disciples in a world that hated them with a passion, simply because they loved Christ and loved His Word. Christ prayed that they would have His joy, that they would be keep, kept from the evil one, and that they would be sanctified. They would be set apart to fulfill a purpose. And then, in the remainder of this chapter, Jesus prays for all believers. And if you are a believer, you can say in this chapter, Jesus prays for you. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. In other words, up until now, I've been praying specifically for the disciples. But I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Friends, I want to stop there for just a second. This is the word of the disciples. If you have believed in Jesus through their word, then in John chapter 17 and verse 20, your Savior prayed for you. Take that in. Before you were even born, before you were even a thought in anyone else's mind but the mind of God, before even cell phones were invented for you younger ones, your Savior went to His Father on your behalf. And this isn't a hypothetical group of people. This isn't if anyone happens to believe. No, Jesus knows who has been given to him. Jesus remembers in eternity past when his Father gave him a people. And now he says, Father, I don't just pray for these who have been here in my life during, during this earthly ministry. I pray for any and all, all of those that you've given to me who will trust and believe in your word. Your Savior prayed for you. That should give you great comfort. That should give you great encouragement. And I, I almost don't want to move on from that, but we have to. Because we have to see specifically, what did Jesus pray for his people? What, what was on the heart of Jesus when he thought about us 2,000 years ago? What was his desire for his people? You see, verse of, first of all, verse twenty. Well, let's just start in verse 20 and, uh, 21 and read on. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and as I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me, and that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved 
me. Jesus' first prayer for us is perfect unity. Unity so perfect that it mirrors the unity that the Son had with the Father. That's, that's what he says. He says, uh, he says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and just as I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' prayer for the disciples is that we would be just as unified, or I'm sorry, for all believers of all time, that we would just be just as unified as the Father is with the Son. And you could add in there, with the Spirit, that we would have that same heart, that same mind, as that, that song uh, we sung, We Are One in the Father, this is the Father, we are one in the Son, we are one in the Spirit. And then the reason why He wants us to be one, at the end of verse 23, I am them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now, pay attention to the end of that verse. If you are in Christ, if you are clinging to Him as your only hope, the Father loves you in the same way that He loves the Son. You have. Because you are in Christ, when He sees you, He sees you with the love that He sees His Son. But Jesus wants us to be one. He wants His people to be, have that perfect unison so that the world may know. The proof of the Father's love. Today, of course we have the cross and the resurrection, but today the proof that you should be able to point people to and say, you want to know that the Father has loved the world? Look at the church. Look at his people. Look at how people from all backgrounds, from all uh, economic statuses, from all races and ethnicities, from all countries and all tongues, all tribes, all nations, look how they love one another all because of Christ. There's the proof of the love of the Father. But not only does he pray that we will be one, not only does he pray for our unity in order to show the love of the Father, but he prays that we would have the presence of Christ in order to reveal the glory of the Son. He goes on in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Not only does he pray that we would be one with one another, but then he prays that we will one day be with him. And when we are with him, though as, as I think it's in Corinthians, he says, though now we see through a mirror dimly, but then we will know as we have been known. We will one day see Christ in all of His glory, completely unveiled. The flesh will be pulled back, and the glory of Jesus will shine. And Jesus prays to His Father that we, His people who have believed in His Word, would be in His presence, would see that glory and glorify Him forever and ever. And then He closes His prayer in verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I've been reading through some of the prophets for my just private devotional 
time. And one thing you see again and again in, in the prophets is God says, I'm doing this not necessarily for your sake, although ultimately it will end up being for your good. I am doing this that my name would be known, that the nations would know that there is a God in Israel, as David says when he faces the, the uh, Goliath. God does what he does primarily and ultimately so that he would be known and glorified for it. And then because we are the people of Christ, that ends up being our greatest good. So here in this prayer, we have the Son of God pouring out his heart's desire to his Father. I want to leave with this encouragement. I think this is probably the best way to wrap this up. 2,000 years later, in the heart of Jesus Christ, our Savior, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Just as much as He desired that He would be glorified, just as much as He desired that His disciples, which now can, uh, can refer to us as well, would, would be kept, would be sanctified, just as much as he desired that his people would be one and would be in his presence, even now, Jesus Christ our Savior, first and foremost on his heart is his glory, that he would be glorified so that he could glorify the Father and the good of his people. Your Savior did not only pray for you then, 2,000 years ago, your Savior continued to intercede with you, for you because of his great love with which he has loved you. If the Son of God went to his Father and prayed, don't you think his Father listened? Don't you think even now his Father has on his mind the prayer of his Son? And even now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is working all things out so that first and foremost, God would be glorified. And secondly, for the good of all those who love him. And when you get right down to it, and I'll close with this, when you get right down to it, if you are in Christ, if you are in love with Him and the things that He loves, then God's glory and your good cannot be separated. That may be a hard thing to hear if you're in a time when, when life is not going in your way, when you're in a time when horrible things are happening to you, or you're, you're facing certain and imminent death or torture, or, or not being able to pay your bills, or whatever it is from small to big. It may be hard to believe that this is for your good. But if you believe the word of God, then you believe all things. Look out for the glory of God and for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose, who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, once again, I am amazed by your word. And I love this, this chapter. I love this portion of Scripture. I love that you included for us a, a section where our great high priest, our eternal Savior, the one who took upon flesh for us, intercedes for us. Even 2,000 years ago, before anyone knew we would ever exist other than God, our Savior prayed for us. But first and foremost, before he even got to where he prayed for us, he prayed that he himself would be lifted up.
He himself would be glorified. He himself would receive again the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. So Father, today as we close this time of worship together, I pray that you would conform our hearts to the heart of our Savior. That we would be concerned primarily first and foremost for our Savior's glory. That we wouldn't do anything, we wouldn't do anything that would make someone that, that would throw any kind of shame on the name of our Savior, that we would live our lives in such a way that when people find out we are followers of Jesus, they know we are followers of Jesus. They know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I pray, Father, that we would also be encouraged to know that just as you are working everything out for your glory, ultimately, if it works out for your glory, then it is our greatest good, even if we do not know it. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.